0: Welcome to Morning Report Top Stories, a selection of news from RNZ's morning news programme.
1: Well, Child advocates have criticised the government, saying it doesn't have any specific strategy to fight child poverty. They say changes to benefit indexing and tax cut policies won't help families that are struggling. Child poverty has worsened to the point that one in eight children are living without the basics at home, according to the latest NZ figures. Kids Can Chief Executive Julie Chapman told Morning Report that urgent action was needed to ease the cost of living crisis, including increasing benefits.
2: The government needs to put child poverty at the front of its agenda. Mm. Uh, we've heard a lot about you know the big job to do to increase productivity and turn things around. I mean, that's great, but right now, I guess for us, uh, on the front line, we're seeing that more more people, more children need food and those uh, mm. things to get them through right now.
1: The Minister for Child Poverty Reduction, Louise Upston, says her government has inherited major challenges and a new approach is needed. She joins us now. Kia ora, Good morning, Minister.
3: Good morning, Ingrid.
1: What is your specific plan to tackle child poverty?
3: Well the first one very clearly is to um, deal with the cost of living because we do know that households, whether they're receiving benefits or on low incomes, are the hardest hit with rising prices. So whether it's dealing with um, housing costs, uh, food, uh, petrol costs, and we've, we've taken action like the regional um, fuel tax being removed, we've got to focus on those costs that are really squeezing households day to day. Um, And that's why we've seen, unfortunately, with the figures to June 23 released yesterday, um, we're going in the wrong direction in terms of child poverty
1: reduction. You said that was the first thing. What else? So then we need to
3: definitely focus on reducing the number of children in benefit-dependent homes. um, And that will be a very clear focus. Um, We want to see children with greater opportunities. And we do know that far too many who are in material hardship are in benefit-dependent homes. Um, so that will be a clear focus of work for me. Um, the figures we've seen recently have also shown the significant length of time that individuals are st- are spending stuck on welfare. Okay, so if we want have to have children to have a life of opportunities, we've got to improve their education. We've got to improve their health and we've got to give them opportunities to be in work.
1: Okay, these are sort of big picture ideas in terms of tackling the cost of living, which obviously need to be addressed. What about raising incomes for low-income families and for those on benefits? Your government's policies will reduce what beneficiaries receive. Uh, The minimum wage increase was uh, minimal. What about increasing incomes for those families?
3: Well, what we've seen is the previous government's focus was on lifting incomes and not about addressing costs. And that's why, unfortunately, we now have uh, worse statistics. Well, shouldn't it be an and? It doesn't
1: have to be an either or. It can be an and.
3: Yeah, and our focus, absolutely, we'll be lifting the minimum wage, we will be reducing the number of households who are dependent on welfare, they will have higher incomes and work.
1: Well, once we they if, if they get a the job in an ideal world, well, but currently 50,000 children are in benefit-dependent homes going without the essentials, they're going to be worse off know. under your government.
4: No,
3: they won't. I don't think it's well. Good they enough will for them be because be there's two billion dollars worth of savings
1: that you're making in terms of indexing benefits to uh, to inflation rather than wages. That's saving yeah. you two billion and thus costing them two billion.
3: Yep. So we'll have a number of policies that we roll out. Um, you can't take just one in isolation. Uh, and and where our focus will be absolutely is the cost of living. And the challenges day-to-day that households are facing, those who have low incomes and fixed incomes, like those receiving welfare, are the hardest hits. That's why we're seeing this massive increase in the number of children living in hardship, because the previous government didn't focus on the costs the households were facing. That's why that is the number one priority for the coalition government. It won't be quick and it won't be easy but we have to tackle it yes because yes Otherwise and, and we we've heard these numbers get worse we've and heard we're not from Julie
1: we've heard from Julie Chapman that that is all good and it will take time to flow through they are asking for urgent specific help this is what people at the coal face are asking for
3: yeah and those that's what we're doing whether it's family boost that that will benefit 130,000 um, low and middle income houses tax credits the in-work tax credit that hasn't been lifted from 2015. Um, those are exact policies that we will be rolling out to support households who are in the um, facing the biggest challenges right now. OK, so, so you're a 10-year-old you're out
1: there at the moment and you're one of the children who is living in poverty, going without. When are you going to see any specific difference, any specific help? When is your situation going to be improved?
5: Well,
3: as I said, it, unfortunately it won't be quick and it won't be easy, but we are tackling it on a number of fronts. We're unwilling to accept... Um, that the country should be going backwards with the number of children living in poverty. And we won't accept it. And that's why there's a number of actions we are taking. um, And the first one is getting on top of the costs that families face. I mean, it would be wonderful to say there's something quick and easy we can do. Uh, It's not easy. As previous governments, both national and Labor, We've been tackling this issue, and progress is hard to make. Uh, It doesn't mean that we should shy away from the challenge, though.
1: In terms of targets and the challenge ahead, I mean, we often hear this government is uh, is focused on outcomes. What outcomes are you committing to here, and when will we see them?
3: Well, we have targets already in terms of child poverty reduction. Um, Unfortunately, because um, we've now inherited a bigger challenge in in getting to those targets, um, but you know, that's, that's what we need to do.
1: That was the Minister for Child Poverty Reduction, Louise Upston.
0: A bullying investigation into one of the country's most senior prosecutors has found her behaviour towards staff was challenging, critical and unpredictable but did not meet the WorkSafe definition of a bully. Crown Law has released the results of an inquiry into claims about Crown solicitor Jacinda Hamilton. The staff who believe they were bullied have told RNZ they are shocked and dismayed at the findings. Our investigative reporter Guy Espiner has been looking into this. Uh, Kia ora, good morning Guyan. Good morning. Just take us back a little bit and remind us what this was all about really.
6: Yes, so about a year ago, a group of complainants, at least five of them who worked at Hamilton Legal, uh, took a complaint that they had been suffering from a pretty toxic workplace environment that um, they say Mrs. Hamilton presided over. And they took this complaint to Crown Law. Crown Law took it pretty seriously. They got a KC, Maria Dew, to do an investigation into this. And then you saw the Solicitor General do her own review into the Crown Solicitor's behaviour. So the Crown Law r- released the findings of the review yesterday, not the review in its, uh, in its entirety. And we can talk about that in, in a second in terms of transparency. But this review by Maria Dew, KC, said there was a valid basis for the concerns raised by the complainants, but as you say, it didn't meet the definition of bullying under the WorkSafe New Zealand definition. I did say, though, that her management style, her communication style was challenging, critical, and unpredictable, and that this led to quote, a poor workplace culture for many staff. Um, the Solicitor General, Una Jagoes, said that the um, findings of the due review were serious, and she accepts that some staff have been genuinely distressed, as well as a loss of staff trust in the Crown solicitor having been undermined. And a- at times, uh Jacinda Hamilton's behaviour um, fell below the standard expected of a warrant holder. Now, all pretty formal language, but it's important because Crown law uh, solicitors are pri- uh, lawyers in private law firms, but they act under terms of office with Crown law. And one of those is to ho- uphold the, the highest standard. So it's fairly serious stuff.
0: Has there been any uh, comment from Jacinda Hamilton?
6: No, we reached out to her last night by text and, and email and and phone, and haven't had any response from from her um, it's important though I suppose to note a couple of things one. The Solicitor-General had another look at her performance. So it says there's no problem with her integrity or performance as a prosecutor. So that that's not in dispute. And it sounds as though the Solicitor-General retains confidence in her um, and says that Mrs. Hamilton accepts that, um, that there has been an issue here and has
0: pledged to basically change her behaviour. OK, and what about those who made the complaint? Have, have we heard from them?
6: Yeah, RNZ was exclusively given a statement from this group of at least five complainants. So, this is not an isolated issue or or, or one person. Uh, They say that they're pretty upset that it hasn't met the threshold of bullying. They say that her behaviour towards them was persistently aggressive, critical, and unpredictable, that this happened over a period of years. And I suppose most significantly for them, led to extreme symptoms of anxiety and depression in several of the staff employed there. They say, quote, we each suffered some or all of those symptoms and are still managing them. And nearly a year on from our complaint to Crown Law, these effects remain ongoing and need to be managed daily. Um, I have to say they're also um, very unimpressed with the, the lack of transparency as, as they see it. Um, this review won't be released. Crown Law saying, no, no not going to release it. And uh, Corrin, I filed two on behalf of RNZ, filed two Official Information Act requests to get this report and they've knocked it back. Um, So I guess that's the wider issue about how these private law firms, you know, interact with Crown law, because we're an outlier in New Zealand that we have Crown solicitors are actually working
0: for private law firms. And they have many of them have had the contract for a very long time, haven't they?
6: Oh, they have. Um, It's quite an interesting system. Some of them had it for more than 100 years. um, And we've never seen a Crown solicitor removed from office in New Zealand. Um, And this kind of case um, does shine a bit of a light on the fact that it's very hard to get information um, in in these scenarios. But um, they have released the top-level findings. It looks like she will remain in her job. But as I say, the complainants um, are upset with that and say that uh, the the behaviour that
0: they suffered has had a significant impact on their mental health. Guyan Espiner, thank you for your time. That is investigative reporter Guyan Espiner with that story.
1: Well, a frustrated nurse says she'll be looking over her shoulder for years after her name was published online in an unauthorised leak of Tefatu Ora data. She's one of 12,000 vaccinators who have their names published on a United States website. The woman believes Tefatu Ora has helped to compromise the safety of nurses who are doing their best in a pandemic. Rowan Quinn reports.
7: The nurse says the email came last Friday, leading to a weekend of worry. It was a total shock, to be honest.
8: I mean, I'd heard about the breach, but it was a little while ago, so I thought nothing on it.
7: The letter to vaccinators says their names were found on a document on the US site on January the 25th and that, to the best of Tefatu Ora's knowledge, they were removed by January the 29th. But it says there's no guarantee they're not elsewhere. The woman's not sure what else she can do to feel safer. So far, she's asked her landlord to fix her fence.
8: Technology these days, obviously someone can look up my name and probably find where I live. So I just worry that one day someone might come to my house and, you know, maybe threaten me and my children or something like that.
7: The nurse says she and her colleagues are trained on how to do everything possible to protect the privacy of patients, and she'd expected the same protection.
8: I assume that their standard of confidentiality and privacy would be top tier. Pretty much everything sealed, so nothing like this could happen. So I'm quite frustrated that they haven't upheld their side of keeping us safe as nurses in New Zealand during the pandemic.
7: In a statement, Te Ora's Chief of People, Andrew Slater, says the agency understands that staff and the public trust it with sensitive data and it's working to improve internal controls and strengthen data security. He says any unauthorised release is a gross breach of trust and they're very disappointed. The union, the Nurses Society, represents about 6,000 nurses and its director, David Wills, says they've fielded a lot of calls from worried people.
9: they are concerned that they might have a, an approach and that their details have been released and wanting to know whether they needed to do anything further.
7: The union's not spoken to anyone who's been threatened or harassed online, but has written to all its members, giving them advice on what to do if that happens. He says some remain a little on edge. Of
9: course, people are mindful that it's still in the hands of outside parties beyond their control, and that is concerning and disturbing. And hopefully, Kavara Ora has taken steps that can ensure that it doesn't happen again.
7: Te Whatu Oras set up a helpline the vaccinators can call and its letter suggests other services they can go to if they want advice. The nurse wants meaningful support in
8: place to help keep them safe. Even Mm. if it's 10, 20, 30 years down the track, I want a guarantee that if something happens about this, say in 20 years someone's not happy and they do something about it, is Tefatu Ora going to be there to help
7: me? Former Tefatu Ora employee Barry Young is accused of leaking the agency's data. He was charged in December with accessing a computer for dishonest purposes and is due to appear in court again today.
1: Rowan Quinn, with that report with security concerns for the 12,000 vaccinators who had their names published on a United States website. Well, the first commercial rideshare to the Moon is set to land later this morning, making it the first US lunar landing since Apollo 17 in 1972. Odysseus, which launched last week, is part of NASA's Commercial Lunar Payload Services Program, which allows private companies to build spacecraft to send experiments to the Moon. On the line from Texas to tell us why is NASA's Deputy Manager for the program, Regina Blue. Kia ora. Good morning, Regina. Welcome to the program. Tell us what exactly is being delivered to the moon on this mission and why?
4: So good morning. So NASA is delivering about six instruments to, to the moon on today's mission with entire intuitive machines. And the broader... Uh, answer to your question as to as the why is that we are enabling the Artemis program objectives for lunar exploration and the Artemis program is endeavoring to put humans on the moon and establish a sustainable human presence and so these clips missions today's mission is launching uh, and sending payloads and technology and science instruments to enable a continued or sustained human presence. So the
1: end game is to get people onto the moon, but this is also a commercial venture, isn't it, as well, with a a rideshare component. How does that work?
4: That is correct, and so uh, NASA has partnered with 14 different companies to do what we call establishing this lunar economy. Intuitive Machines is one of 14, and so what it does is it gets NASA's resources freed up to do other things like uh, Mars exploration and other deep space objectives that the agency or the government, the U.S. government has, and so we have gotten the commercial companies in the business of delivering these payload services to the lunar surface, whereas before today, it was primarily the government's job.
1: And is there anything uh, special about the part of the moon that you're going to?
4: Absolutely. The, The prevailing, there are lots of special things about the South Pole region, but the major thing, or two major things, is one, you heard me mention Artemis, and so the South Pole region is where we are planning to send humans to explore and to to, uh, live on the moon. And so it's important that we understand that environment. Uh, More importantly, our scientists know that that part of the uh, moon uh, has water in the form of ice. And so we are, are interested in understanding what resources are available there such that, again, the end goal is always to sustain human presence on the South Pole region for the Artemis lunar exploration.
1: And it's set to land later this morning. Is everything going to plan?
4: Everything is uh, going well, thank you very much. Uh, the landing uh, specific time is being updated uh, pretty much real time, so uh, I would invite you to go to Intuitive Machines' website uh, to, to get the exact time of the landing, if you will, but I think it is at approximately 3.30, central time.
1: Thank you very much for your time this morning. That is NASA's Deputy Manager of the Odysseus Programme, Regina Blewett.
0: Now, change of tack. Sport, the defending champions, Crusaders, take on the Chiefs to open the Super Rugby Pacific season in Hamilton tonight. Scott Robertson has, of course, moved on to coach the All Blacks, ending his extraordinary reign in Christchurch. Taking his place as Crusaders head, head coach is Rob Penny. I asked him about the expectations that now come with the role.
5: Oh well, it's a fantastic legacy, isn't it? It's pretty unique. But the reality is, this is a new team, new group, and you know we're just focused on being the best team we can be this year and just trying to win this one. So um, we're not looking beyond that in um, any great detail, except the fact that you know the the past uh, Crusader teams have all been uh, you know outstanding, and we're just trying to replicate their on and off field performances throughout the campaign.
0: You need, obviously, some new young players to to come forward, given that you've lost the likes of Richie Moonga and uh, Sam Whitelock, who you can't sort of overstate their significance as players.
5: I remember back when Mertz was here, and who's going to replace Mertz? Well, DC rolled out. He wasn't bad. And then when DC retired, you know, who's going to replace him? Well, obviously Richie. Yep, somebody else has to um, step in and fill the void, but... Uh, an opportunity opens up, and, and young men given support, they'll achieve.
0: And you've given that opportunity to Rivers Harner. Can you tell me a little bit about him and, and what he brings?
5: Yeah, Rivers is at an age now where he's had a bit of experience, particularly up in the Chiefs' environments. Ironically enough, um, over the past three or four years, he hasn't had a lot of access to the game, but you know has been around professional environments and has steered the ship for Northland really admirably over the last few years. So we're rapt to have him. And, um, you know, he's, he's someone that uh, is going to make his own way through this campaign. He's got to be himself. Based on his skill set and his desire and his work ethic, uh, he'll be a great success if he does all those things well.
0: Who do you see as your biggest threat? I mean, is there any signs of the Australian renaissance?
5: Hard to know without a game being played yet, but obviously there'll be probably upsets and um, there'll be teams that are a little bit inconsistent on their day. They'll be very challenging and maybe uh, on other days they won't be so challenging. But the classic for us, I guess, are the local derby games. have traditionally been great spectacles and brutal affairs and I don't think that'll stop. And obviously with the new All Black management group looking hard at potential selections down the track there's another incentive for new people to put their hands up.
0: And I suppose that will be the, very much the case with the Chiefs. Have you have you thought too much about that in terms of it being a repeat of the final? Uh, do you try and block that out?
5: Well, it's got nothing to do with me, that game. The Chiefs can't win it this year by beating us. Um, there's a lot of talk coming out about them preparing as if it's a bit of payback. but and, and that's cool, so I want to use that for motivation. But for us, we're a new team. We're just focused on trying to be as good as we can this year to... To represent the Crusaders with a lot of pride and passion, and, and do the right thing by that, and if we achieve that, um, you know, you know, we'll be relatively satisfied no matter what the outcome.
0: Just finally, when you when you walked into the office for your first day, did uh, did Scott Robertson leave you a little handover note? Did he?
5: No, he, he, um, what he didn't do was vacuum the place out or clean the desk properly. So I spent the first 24 hours cleaning, lady. <laughs> but um, we managed to get through all that. And uh, Razor and I keep in regular contact and have some good chats. So um, it's all good. Can't wait to see him with the All Black team.
0: And that is the, well, the new Crusaders head coach, Rob Penny, ahead of the opening supermatch against the Chiefs tonight. To climate change now, and the EU's climate service says humanity has experienced its first year of living at temperatures most countries have been trying to avoid. It's been a long hot summer in New Zealand with temperatures soaring, and climatologists say the 2024, 2024 may break even more records worldwide. Even so, the good news is that steps to reduce carbon have not been in vain, climate correspondent Eloise Gibson
10: reports. 2023 bought New Zealand's second hottest average temperatures, rounding out an unwelcome trifecta of the last three years being the hottest three on record. But NIWA forecaster Tristan Myers fears the records are starting to seem normal. He was woken at 4am last week to give an emergency forecast for battling a wildfire, the kind of event projected to rise.
9: You can have some days in the Canterbury region, maybe reaching you know the high 30s or 40s. Maybe you see a weak spell of something like that. And then all of a sudden, you see a very, very heavy rainfall event following it, right? These are just overlapping extremes on top of each other, and they magnify the impact.
10: Mr Myers says last year was exceptional, but in 10 years, it'll be normal. Climatologists say we'll be at last year's levels permanently in the 2030s.
9: There is an up and down trend when it comes to these rising temperatures on Earth. You can see that, you know, it's floating around. But if you were to smooth it all out and take, you know, an average of 10, 20, 30 years at a time, what you see is a a line that goes up and to the right.
10: Climate scientist Nathaniel Melia says last year was a bounce back after three years of suppression.
0: We had COVID, which took um, a bit of a lump out of emissions. And then we had La Nina, three years in a row, which is pretty rare. So that also puts a big suppression on temperatures. But our background CO2 emissions, that's still increasing up. So what we've done is we've kind of compressed this spring.
10: He says ironically, cleaning up deadly air pollution also temporarily increases temperatures because the pollutants act as mirrors reflecting some of the sun's heat. It's not average temperatures that cause problems. It's what they do to the extremes globally major temperature records agree the world was around 1.5 degrees hotter last year than before the boom in the use of fossil fuels. Tristan Myers says it's not like taking a gentle 21 degree day and turning it up to 22.5.
9: What we're really measuring is the amount of energy and heat that's stuck in the atmosphere. We're think about the oceans, right? The oceans are enormous and we're heating up the oceans. Where's that heat going? It's going everywhere. And it's causing a lot of things to destabilise.
10: Although the 1.5 degree threshold is important politically under the Paris Agreement, Nathaniel Melia says the reality is that every fraction of a degree matters. He says impacts don't rise on a tidy scale.
0: You look back to what life was like at one degree, and then you look at life now, but you look at the amount of extreme events, just extreme weather events, are constantly in the new, and that is and that is what we, we're, we're due to get.
10: He says the problem is the sheer amount of energy being added.
0: Things like tropical cyclones, they are the atmosphere's way or the climate system's way of redistributing that energy. And the more energy you're giving to the atmosphere, the more it has to do with these sorts of odd behaviours and damaging behaviours.
10: Both men agree that with an El Nino system influencing... Fossil fuels could boost us to another record-breaking year.
9: Yeah, look, it doesn't bode well for what we're going to be measuring at the end of this year, um, if if history is a guide to what we can see.
10: But there's some good news. Nathaniel Melia says countries' carbon-cutting actions have made the old, direst prediction of up to four degrees of warming extremely unlikely. He says where temperatures do stop is a matter for politicians.
0: And that is climate correspondent Eloise Gibson with that report.
1: Finance Minister Nicola Willis has met with her counterpart Jim Chalmers in Sydney where she shared the coalition government's plans to grow trade and to deepen investment links. Uh, Nicola Willis joins us now from Sydney. Kia ora, good morning Minister. Kia ora. good morning Ingrid. What is the approach of the new government to this relationship and are the Australians on the same page?
2: Well, we think this is an incredibly important relationship for New Zealanders. Obviously, we've got uh, large amounts of New Zealanders in Australia. We have a really significant economic and trade relationship and a very strong history of uh, close relationship through the Closer Economic Relations Framework and Single Economic Market. So our government's approach is to deepen, enhance and support this relationship for the benefit of New Zealanders.
1: How much easier can doing business in Australia get? What are you asking for? Well, at Char-
2: the, uh, Treasurer Chalmers and I discussed a number of areas where New Zealand and Australia face shared economic challenges. So an example of that would be uh, reducing climate change emissions in our economies. Uh, And we talked about how that's going to be easier for businesses and those choosing to invest in our two countries if we have aligned regulations in that area. So that's one example. We also have some shared uh, concerns in the Pacific. So uh, we share a concern to see banking services maintained in the Pacific and we want to work together On supporting that. Uh, We also uh, both benefit when uh, our two countries are attracting investment from around the world and so presenting ourselves as a single economic market. uh, There are always new things that we can do to align. Uh, We'll be having another uh, meeting later this year to really focus in on that issue of climate change and how we can make more progress working together.
1: Yeah, can you give me an example of how our climate change regulations could be more aligned?
2: Well, the issue that um Treasurer Chalmers has focused on is this issue of energy transformation. So if you think about some of the new technologies that are coming on, whether that's offshore wind, whether that's floating solar, uh, whether that's hydrogen, these present new regulatory challenges because these are new technologies. Rather than us reinventing the wheel and coming up with bespoke regulatory approaches in Australia and New Zealand, um, the opportunity is to work together to come up with regimes. So it's the same here as it is in Australia and that makes it easier for anyone wanting to invest in those technologies.
1: You mentioned the large number of New Zealanders living in Australia. Is that number too large? How worried are you about New Zealanders leaving to move there?
2: Well, I'd just first acknowledge that uh, Treasurer Chance was one of the people who really championed citizenship rights for New Zealanders. He has a large number of Kiwis in his own constituency, and we're grateful to him for that. Look, I I always worry if talented, skilled people are leaving New Zealand and in, in really large numbers. Of course, it's natural. It's the right of Kiwis uh, to to move around the world. Um, but I also think it's a sign of success if people are choosing to stay in New Zealand and ultimately the mission of our government is to make our economy stronger so that people look at New Zealand, they say, well, I've got great opportunities here, these good jobs, they're well-paying, I can have a high standard of living, good public services. So that's the mission of our government, to make New Zealand a place where people want to invest their life.
1: Okay, a couple of quick things. Supermarkets, they're having the same sort of dramas over there in terms of, uh, of worries about food prices and, and monopolies and that type of thing. Did you discuss that at all? Is there any common ground there about how to tackle that?
2: That wasn't one of the issues that came up in our discussion, although we did discuss that both as uh, financial leaders in our governments, the cost of living is a major front of mind issue. Uh, That's uh, an issue in Australia. It's an issue in New Zealand. Uh, I note that uh, Australia is, uh, in July, delivering a package of tax reduction uh, in part to help support Australians uh, have more money in their back pockets to deal with the cost of living crisis. And I'd note that New Zealand is intending to take a similar approach.
1: Yeah, that, that, uh, Anthony Albanese has ruled out uh, moving in to, to break up the supermarket monopoly. Are you on that same page there?
2: Well, in New Zealand, obviously, this is a, uh, something we're watching very closely. We have the new grocery commissioner model, uh, and we as a government are uh, allowing that time to bed in to see whether that is going to work, that's going to make a difference. Uh, and we've indicated that uh, we're monitoring the situation. We want to see those powers being used effectively. Uh, and we do want to see our supermarkets are fostering good competition so that New Zealanders are paying fair prices.
1: Australia's also getting the economic boom of uh, Taylor Swift playing in Sydney tonight. Are you staying for that? I'm not staying, Ingrid, but I tell you there's
2: a bit of Taylor Swift mania over here. There are a huge number of Kiwis uh, flying over. And um, no, look, this is very much a work visit for me, a business visit. I do have a colleague who I know is coming over in personal capacity because they're such a KK fan, uh, but I won't be joining them tonight.
1: Thank you for your time. That was uh, Finance Minister Nicola Willis who was in Sydney on business there uh, meeting with her counterpart, Jim Chalmers.
5: You've been listening to Morning Report Top Stories.